Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax audit and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. Given this public health care crisis we have been enduring now these past several months, there is now no topic more important than starting school. I'm Chris William, and welcome to this special executive profile on Carolina Business Review, the most widely watched and longest running source of Carolina business, policy, and public affairs seen each and every week across the Carolinas for almost 30 years now. Thank you for joining us in a moment. We will talk to the superintendent of public instruction in the state of North Carolina, the Honorable Mark Johnson. And that dialogue starts now. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at Bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, an executive profile featuring Mark Johnson, North Carolina Superintendent of Education. And welcome again to our program, the Honorable Mark Johnson, Superintendent of Education in the state of North Carolina. Your Honor, welcome to the program. Nice to see you. Chris, thank you for having me. Uh, we've been trying to make this happen for a while, and I'm glad that we are finally getting to have this one-on-one -on -one conversation with so much to talk about. How, how are you personally staying safe? I know that it's a bit of a throwaway question, but how do you stay safe with the con constituents and the meetings and et cetera, et cetera? It's, it's not. I mean, that is a very good question because I'm very adamant that any child and parent who wants the opportunity to go back to in-person learning this fall should have that opportunity. So I need to practice what I preach. And I make sure that as I'm traveling, which I am, uh, I stay six feet apart mm -hmm. at all times. Uh, and also when I'm inside, I wear a face covering. Um, that is, that's where everyone needs to be. We know that is, my shield to help protect you from getting it if I have it and don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. uh, but one thing's for sure, uh, we are all facing COVID-19 together and there are steps that we can take to prevent the spread and I am actively taking those steps. And still, yes, traveling, visiting schools that are in summer school session to see how this is gonna look for next school year. So, as you well know, and you just mentioned the start of school a couple of weeks ago, Your Honor, the governor of North Carolina announced what his office and 
he personally would endorse for the start of school in the fall, and that is what we're all calling now Plan B. The governor of South Carolina did something that's the same thing. Uh, how is Plan B the best approach? I personally don't think so, and as some people might have seen, I was not standing with the governor for that announcement, uh, and that is because I am very grateful that he reduced the restriction in Plan B that put a cap at 50% maximum occupancy on school buildings. That is something I pushed for. I said we can have social distancing in schools, but let's not put a maximum cap on the number of people in the school uh, because North Carolina has a lot of small rural districts. Obviously, your Charlotte-Mecklenburg School District, your Wake County, where Raleigh is, uh, very crowded schools, much different story than if you go very far east or very far west, where we have small school districts. And out east, we actually have declining populations. So you, you could potentially get more than 50% of the students who want to come back to in-person learning, give options for those who don't, and you could get them all into that setting. He made that change. I was very appreciative, but a little technicality, the devil's in the details. Uh, the maximum occupancy was changed to what it would be making sure that all students and all teachers were six feet apart at all times. And uh, as everyone has been talking about over the past few weeks as we get closer to the school year and some schools are actually starting, that is extremely difficult in a school setting. I believe it's very important for the classroom, but we're also wearing face coverings in the classroom. But when you start talking about getting off of a school bus, where we're not even six feet apart in a school bus, so you're not six feet apart, you get off the school bus, trying to stay six feet apart in elementary school, middle school, high school, very, very challenging, should be the goal, mm -hmm. uh, but we should also give some grace to educators who are really trying their best to try to get back in the classroom. And not, not, to, not to drill down too far on that, but isn't that the point about the safety of those who are in the classroom, both teachers and students, et cetera? Isn't that the point? Do you weight that differently uh, about personal safety or is it about education and restarting? How do, how do you come up with that? It, it's about the need to get students back to in-person learning. This is a scary time for everyone. It's scary for students. I have a, I have a seven-year-old myself. I, I hate that she's going through the emotional toll of this virus at that such, such an early age. It's really tough. But it, it's also scary for, we know, teachers. It's scary for parents. And that's why it's important that everyone who is not yet comfortable going back into the classroom has the option for remote learning. Mm -hmm. But we also know that there are places like in Eastern North Carolina, where we have some counties that the number of ducks far outnumber the number of people, we don't have the capability to do high quality remote learning in some places. And at least for those students, I'd like to see them get the chance to come back to in-person learning and our exceptional children and, and the, the, the students who have special needs, if they can do it safely, I'd like for them to have the opportunity to come back in. And even if that's just a small number, I'd like to see people back in the classroom. Uh, Mr. Superintendent, I want to come back to that rural learning and, and, and the, the, this whole issue of broadband that really took off in the early days and now seems to be lost. But before we do that, characterize the relationship that you and DPI have with the governor's office. Is, is, is that what it should be? Do you want, it, do you want something different? I absolutely want something different. I've been very vocal at 
the constitutional level in North Carolina. Anyone who has been watching your show probably has been following very closely that there has been a tug of war between different leaders in North Carolina over education, not just for the last three years of my term, but for decades. Because you have so many people with their hands in the cookie jar, cookie jar in education that when something good happens, everyone in Raleigh wants to take credit. When something bad happens, they all can point the finger at somebody else. You've got a governor, you've got a general assembly, you've got a state board of education, you've got an elected superintendent. Then you have local school boards that are actually making a lot of the decisions on the ground. So right now, in the COVID crisis, the relationship between the state superintendent and DPI, the state board, and the governor is a good relationship. We are talking to each other. We talk to each other every day. We do share ideas. And while we have policy disagreements, we are working together. The, I'm sorry, go ahead. The 10,000-foot level is ultimately, I, I still very firmly believe that North Carolina needs a governance amendment to its constitution. I believe that this whole system would work better if regardless of who the governor is, the governor gets to appoint the state superintendent. And there's actually some real accountability between the governor's office and the state superintendent. The accountability where if something doesn't go wrong, it, it doesn't go right at DPI, if there are problems, you can hire or fire that person. There's no accountability like that for the state board or the state superintendent. And that leads to issues at DPI. Are you optimistic that North Carolina, as you described, all of these different uh, entities and initiatives and agencies that have this interest in education, are you optimistic that there will be more of a, a focus on a more of a singular leadership structure in the near term? I, I don't think in the near, near term, but the good news is, is that more so than ever before, all of these different uh, leadership entities are working together. And I think you've seen that uh, just in the last year or two. We have the UNC system, the community college system, business, nonprofits and philanthropies, DPI, state board, governor's office, general assembly. They are at least all coming together to try to work in the same direction. So that's good. Uh, I do ultimately think the best way to solve this is to have more accountability in our education governance, uh, and that would be a constitutional amendment. That's a very heavy lift, very heavy lift. It's been done successfully in some states. It has not been done successfully in other states uh, because it is, it is partly by design that the uh, accountability can be spread out, uh, but it's not what's best for our school system. Uh, uh, let's unpack Many people have said that obviously there's a there's a big debate about teachers and safety and pay and and tenure and, and retention, et cetera, et cetera. But many folks have said just as importantly are the principals and the superintendents. They are keystones in education. A, a superintendent said to me recently, a 30 year veteran said to me recently that this may be the hardest thing he has ever had to face in his 30 year career in public instruction and in public education. Um, what are you hearing that is alarming or is encouraging from superintendents? Well, obviously, all of COVID-19 is alarming. Uh, this is, it's alarming is the uncertainty. I think that's the biggest thing that's really causing all of these challenges is the uncertainty. First uncertainty is we really don't know how many people have already had COVID-19 and didn't even know it. So how many positives are out there? Second is, mm -hmm. how easily does it transmit when we put these barriers in place? So the six feet social distancing and the face masks 
are, are those going to be enough to protect teachers who are rightfully so very concerned about coming back into the classroom, especially if they're in the high risk category? So the uncertainties have been so challenging. The, the promise and the optimism clearly is the way local leaders have stepped up to the challenge. I, I, I cannot commend the local superintendents in, and local leaders in North Carolina and principals enough for the work they have done. We at the Department of Public Instruction have tried to bear on our shoulders as much of the weight of this as possible, but ultimately the most we can do is provide federal funds to improve remote learning and to provide federal funds and guidance to help students get back into school. The, the work, the boots on the ground, that's the local superintendents and that's the principals. And I've, I've visited the schools. It's gonna be extremely challenging, but you had principals all throughout the summer making sure, hey, this, this hallway is gonna be a one-way hallway. And we got the arrows on the floor. We got the posters up. We've got the desks all separated. That work is happening school by school and the, the teachers, the principals, the local superintendents are truly champions. And that should give everyone uh, a glimmer of optimism in the face of these extraordinary challenges. The systemic way that budgets are derived from year to year is based on enrollment, as you very well know, sir. And the idea that in 2020, maybe 2021, that enrollment will be eviscerated in some cases more than double digits. So when the following budget is proposed, it's going to be proposed on a greatly reduced headcount of students in any given system. That seems to be a coming tsunami of budgetary shortfall. I don't want to be too dramatic here, but what, what is the plan? How, what do you talk about with the governor and their state board and other educators to figure out a way that we don't get caught flat-footed in any school system in the Carolinas, that we can have a plan that doesn't add insult to injury for the coming years? Great question. And that's, that's an example of how we have been thinking ahead. Uh, we have been proactive. And it's very important that we do that student count for these districts who are doing remote or maybe some kind of blended that make it make sure that we are capturing all the students who are remote, and we count that in the enrollment of the school district. So that's the first step, is making sure that these options have been given, and a lot of parents are taking those virtual options. I'm sorry to interrupt sure you. Is that, is, that, is that a legal tactic to do that, or does some law have to be changed to, to allow those that are enrolled, bona fide enrolled, to, in that number? Right now, it's not looking like we're going to have to change a law for that specifically because of the way the governor's putting in executive orders that can actually help give some leniency to the laws. If it does take a legislative fix, that is something we will work with our General Assembly to do. So the way it usually works is you get a, a, a few weeks, two or three into the school year, you do a head count, uh, you get an understanding of how many students you have to, to do your budget. You also then get to go to October and do another head count. So you have two head counts and you get to take the best of either of those. We're gonna see what that comes up to. And if we do have a big drop off, we will be asking for a hold harmless for this year. Because to your point, once we are post COVID-19 and there will be a day where we are beyond all this, where we are able to go back to school, we have to make sure that we're ready for if there were students that were pulled out for homeschooling, for example, when they come back, we're ready with the funding.
Congress is debating a possible $1 trillion stimulus plan. $70 billion of that is proposed to be for public education, for K through 12 schools. A majority of that, two thirds of that, is funding proposed to use to go directly to schools who have in-person learning. The bias of that money, and that's my term, but the bias of that money to, uh, to encourage schools to go in school learning, is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Does that put schools at risk and, and use a carrot to do it, or should that be rethought? I think that's something you'll see over the next few weeks will probably be rethought. And as we're filming this, uh, that is getting in the very early stages of negotiation. I hope the negotiation goes well. Uh, I am a member of the cohort of chief state school officers. We've been working together very closely on pushing Congress to come together for a compromise to get more relief funding out. Uh, I, I believe that's something you'll see some give and take on, uh, but I also don't think at the end of the day that will change the mind of a local superintendent who feels it's best to stay remote or feels it's best to go in person. Uh, so we'll wait, we'll be able to see where that lands, uh, but I think you'll see some give and take on that. But you're, are you encouraged though, Your Honor, that that, that money will eventually flow to public schools? Yes, yes. I, I am happy to see that we're at a starting point where this relief package is moving forward. I'm optimistic we will get a relief package going forward. There's been a lot of work on this over the summer with the uh, other state chiefs of education mm -hmm. to make sure we lobby our congressional delegation to let them know we're extremely grateful for the CARES Act funding that came months ago. We've been using that to help start school. Uh, we're going to need more funding to be able to continue school because ultimately, whether it's in person or whether it's remote, the biggest fear that we all face, and we agree on this, is the potential for learning loss. Uh, we already know it's going to be a, a daunting learning loss for our students because they've, they um, overnight were sent from 0% to 100% remote learning back in March. Uh, that did not go well. We own that. We know whether you're a student, a teacher, or a parent, we know that educators were working their hardest, but we weren't set up to switch to that overnight. And it was very frustrating for everyone involved, teachers, students, and parents. And we know students lost a lot of learning. Then they went into summer where they normally lose learning to add on top of that. So we're very concerned about the learning loss. And regardless of how it comes down from Washington, we're, we're pleased that we have movement because we've got to get the right tools in the hands of teachers and students to make sure we combat that learning loss for when we get out of this crisis. You, you used a term that said other chiefs of education in other states. So I want to, I'm going to bring up your counterpart in South Carolina uh, who joined us last week, uh, uh, Secretary of Education in South Carolina, Molly Spearman. And one of the things that Secretary Spearman uh, highlighted as being a chief, one of the chief concerns for the state of South Carolina was the idea that homeschooling, online uh, enrollment, private teaching, private tutoring, et cetera, et cetera, were assailing public education, which means also public budgets. Um, is th that wave of uh, alternate education outside of the standard K through 12 that we know, how much of a concern of that? How do you approach that? What's the strategy? Right now, we're hopeful that that won't be too big of an issue for North Carolina 
because we do have a lot of districts. In fact, every district is now required to offer that virtual learning environment for its students who are not comfortable coming back into the classroom. So what I believe we are seeing is you will have some students who get that additional uh, help from a tutor while they're still enrolled in that remote learning. We haven't yet seen the numbers of students who have actually switched to homeschooling or to private schools. It is a concern if that number is high. If that was more of just an interest over the summer and now that parents see that there will be better remote learning from their home districts, uh, if they go back into their districts and they're counted, it will be less of a concern. But that's definitely something we're gonna need to follow as we go back to school. Don't, don't you think, and, and, and again, I don't mean for this to be a leading question, sir, but don't you think that, that the idea and the opportunity and the alternative option now for parents and for students, don't you think it's here to stay? Don't you think that that type of learning is going, has, has clearly found purchase and found a place and will also be a choice that we have to, that, that legislatures, legislators have to consider? I'm not so convinced because I believe that in March, April, May, you saw what we've been pushing for for years, a whole new respect for what a teacher in a classroom does. Uh, people have always known how important teachers are and have always respected the job, but there's been all this political back and forth about you know what the role of a teacher is and how much salary there should be and and how 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 the work life balance is there's been all this political debate but then parents had students at home for months upon months and realized uh, i can speak for myself how hard it was to motivate my child when it's me juggling my job, my wife juggling uh, her projects and, and her career uh, with our daughter, who we could see was not as motivated by us trying to push her as she was when she was in that classroom with her teacher. And I think you'll see a lot of that. I'm not as concerned that we are totally upending the delivering of public education. What I do believe we need to talk about, and I've been talking about this for my term as state superintendent, and now it's more important than ever, is we need to uh, transform how we deliver education even at the school. Uh, teachers have been trying to do this for decades, and that is personalized learning, individualized education. Meet a student where they are and help them grow at their own pace. It's been very challenging for a teacher to do that for 20, 25, 30 students until now where we have the technology and the digital curriculum programs that actually help mm -hmm. accomplish that. And that's actually something we've been dedicating our federal relief funds towards. So we believe we're getting a foot in the door to be able to use this crisis, which is terrible, to show parents and teachers and students what education can be if we all work together when we get out of this crisis. We have a couple minutes left and it's never fair because we have to shoehorn a bunch of information into a dialogue like this, sir. But um, how does the renewed but generation, generationally old racial equity debate, how does that factor into schools now? What is important to keep out front and to remember? Oh, well, now, now it's more important than ever because of the events of this year, 2020. I, this, this will be a pivotal point in the history of our nation because you, you had uh, the two events of, one, the COVID-19 crisis, putting a glaring spotlight on the inequities uh, in our schools. And then, of course, you had 
uh, over the summer, you, you had the glaring spotlight on inequities that exist in our society. And you have a, a willingness from people from all political spectrums, all walks of life to do something about this. And that's why personally, I really want the opportunity for as many students to get back to in-person learning as possible, do it safely. But we know that there are people with means who have students who are gonna be able to help them with remote learning, who may be able to even hire tutors to come in and supplement the remote learning. We also know that there are students who in March and April, they might've had an internet connection, they might've had a device, but they didn't even log in to the remote learning. We know there are students out there and that's not even the students who don't even have the internet connection. So that's a glaring, glaring gap in equity. And I think you're gonna see out of this COVID-19 crisis and everything that's happened for our nation over the, this, these past few months, you're gonna see some real momentum towards that. And you're, you know, as much, as much back and forth as there's been between the State Board of Education and myself, and I represent DPI, uh, you're gonna see a lot of actual movement together. Uh, we'll, we'll probably still disagree on a lot, but you'll see a lot of movement from us together putting North Carolina on that path as well. So, so we have literally less than a minute left. What have you learned about political relationships and leadership these last four years as you head to the fall and what would be the end of a four-year term for you? Well, it's tough, but if you really want to move the needle, if you really want to make change, you've got to stick to your principles. And no matter what is said out there uh, across the state, or what may be misinterpreted, you've got to push for what you believe. And I am proud to say that while we have had a fight, we've had lawsuits, we've made a very positive change to the Department of Public Instruction. I have been able to bring in a very strong team, and the ultimate compliment on that is the fact that we have local superintendents across the state that are very appreciative for the service we have done for them. Uh, Superintendent Johnson, thank you. Of course, we're out of time. Thank you for your leadership, uh, especially during a very tender time. Uh, best of luck to you going forward and to uh, all involved. Uh, take care. You too. Stay safe. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Bearings, Grant Thornton, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.